Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dreaming of the world That we may dream as one With every voice, with every song We will move this world along There are many ways to nudge the world in the right direction, one of which is through novels which highlight an issue. Think of Uncle Tom's Cabin, The Jungle, or All Quiet on the Western Front. Today we'll be talking to two authors who combined fiction about sex abuse, harassment, and the sex trade with an unusual form of detective sleuthing. The heroes of both books are religious women whose path to solving the murder mystery avoids the pow-bam, flex-your-muscles approach for a technique more suited to peace and justice advocates. My first guest is Blair Hull, a congregational UCC minister herself. The book is St. Mary's Private Dancer, and Blair joins us now by phone from Whitewater, Wisconsin. Blair, thank you so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark, for inviting me. I'm very excited to be on the show. It's really intriguing to me that a pastor would decide to write a murder mystery. It doesn't seem that that's maybe what pastors are going about. On the other hand, for what do I know, you can have people coming to you confessing their murders or however that happens in the congregational UCC church. (laughs) Do you have people coming with dastardly crimes and saying, oh, by the way, I just uh, raped 12 people and killed four and I need some counseling? Actually, I have. It's always a surprise. It's disconcerting. For me personally, it's more been women who have come to me talking about abuse in their marriages. But ever since I started uh, being a pastor, women do come to me with their issues of sexual abuse. And I think it might be because up to the last 30 years, there have been fewer women in the pulpit. So women as clergy were not available to be approached. As we're seeing logically in the news, it's a terrible thing for people to come forward. They're afraid, they're frightened, they're made fun of, they're told to get over it and get it together. So people just suck it up. They don't talk about it. And every time it's disconcerting and frightening for them for sure. And only once has a man come forward and told me that he has abused someone. I mean, we are seen as someone who is safe and reliable, and I hope I and or most of us who this happens to, you know, can really live up to the expectations of people coming to us. Do you have also people coming forward, uh, men perhaps, who've been abused various ways? I'm part of a men's group, and over the years I can't tell you the number of men who've come forward talking about how they were abused, particularly as children. I'm talking about sexual abuse and all of that, or people who are trans or some way don't fit into the neat categories of sex, gender in our society. Do you have those people coming to you as well? Yes, yes. I have had both. 
it's always a very humbling thing when it happens, and it's always very disconcerting. I'm kind of wondering about your motivation, Blair, for writing St. Mary's Private Dancer. Again, Shepard Murdoch is the lead character, and I think she must be your alter ego in many ways. <laughs> Why did you write the book? Your congregation wasn't keeping you busy enough? I don't know. <laughs> oh, golly. Well, it's kind of a long story, but I have a grandson who I knew was not going to have a lot of money when it came time to go to college. So when he was born, I decided, what else could I do? My already job kept me pretty busy. I didn't want to get another job, but what might I do to make money? That's hilarious because you don't make money writing. You don't make money as a writer (laughs) unless you sell big books. It took me a long time to write this book. Many years, I would put it in a drawer. It sat in a drawer for several years, twice. But... It is a book that I wrote with just the normal person in mind. I remember years and years ago hearing that most newspapers were written for just the average reader that if somebody had gone through, let's say, fifth grade, could read the newspaper. And that's what I wanted for my book. I wanted my book to be readable by anybody who could read and to not be over-intellectual and not have lots of big words or big theoretical or theological even concepts. I wrote it for just the normal, ordinary person, especially women. Now, I might be thrilled if men read it, but especially women, and I think I say this off and on in the book, And I say it certainly in the introduction, you know, people who feel that their lives have been, they've made big mistakes, they are not forgivable, that they are not loved by God or anybody, I sort of want people to know that's not true. And that is my theological construct, if there is one. I believe who or whatever created us loves us regardless. But I do know that people feel guilty. They feel bad about things that they've done. And I sort of wrote this So people might see that that didn't have to always be true. And as a minister, it's a little counterintuitive, I guess, for people if they have an image of what a clergy person is supposed to be or talk about. But I've experienced, like I said, as a clergy person, so many people coming to me and revealing things like this. And I've experienced it in my own life. And I know that it's just important to get it out on the table and talk about it. So... That sort of was my incentive. Again, the book is St. Mary's Private Dancer by Blair Hull. It's dealing with issues that have reached the forefront. I mean, the book came out several months ago, so that's before the Me Too revolution erupted. Do you figure maybe you had some part in it? I mean, I think it's part of the societal energy that your book came out at this time. Boy, that'd be terrific. Uh, That would be wonderful. I hadn't ever thought of that. For me, just sort of the process, and and maybe this is exactly how Me Too has happened. Um, Maybe this is how cultural things happen. There becomes a large enough group of people who are listening or paying attention or maybe reading or interested that makes that kind of movement, if it is a movement, possible. So... I hope the book shows people being vulnerable, nobody's good and nobody's bad, everybody makes mistakes, we can be loved by each other, and certainly God, regardless of what's happened. There's a priest in the book that comes out a little bit in the beginning, like, you know, there's a question of, is he kind of lecherous? And by the end, I hope that you see that he was so well-meaning, 
and misinformed. And I knew a priest like this who did these kinds of things, who actually gave me a lot of information about women who are in this work. So sometimes we learn a short bit or we learn a paragraph about a person or we hear a story and we immediately vilify them, she or he, as being something in our own sense of what is right and wrong. We vilify or we glorify maybe. And I don't think life's like that. I think we all screw up and we all have successes and it's balanced. But sometimes we don't see it that way because when, when life is tough, it's hard to acknowledge that we've done ever done anything that has value. And especially if you're in sex work, it's very, very hard to do anything other than live in the absolute moment because if you thought about it too much, you'd freak out. I think these things need cracking open. I kind of say that I have a ministry of cracking the egg open and really looking at it. And maybe we can't do anything about what it looks like and maybe we can't solve any problems, but we can begin a conversation to talk about it. So I have had everything from... You know, Hell's Angels, who have, uh, Hell's Angel came to me and told me about many exploits, but the worst was that he had abused a baby. And things like that, you can't ever erase them. All you can do is acknowledge them and talk about it and move forward and hopefully find, find a better way. One of the things that I find so exciting about the Me Too campaign is this idea that somehow the person who was harassed or abused has shame with respect to that. When you keep things hidden in the dark, they fester frequently. And from what I can see, it looks to me like a great release to say, I'm not alone, number one. And number two, here is the truth of what's happened. I no longer have to lie. Those two things, I think, can't help but lead us in a better direction. And the few people that of us who have come forward, that's just the tip of the iceberg. That's just the tiny, tiny beginning because this has happened to all women and maybe many men. I certainly have friends who are gay and trans who have stories that would curl your hair. I think that everyone is or can be abused by someone in power. And I think it's exciting that this is coming forward, that there's more people talking about it. I do think that there's I mean, I don't want to necessarily get into this politically, but I think when Al Franken said he didn't know what people were talking about, it's because as an entertainer for his whole life, he was a silly guy who did silly things, and some of them happened to be kind of sexual, and he never realized how hurtful that was. But he took it seriously, and I would guess is dealing with it. That's so much different. That's a different way than some other people who have actually done things knowing what they were doing. But it's interesting to watch what's going on. I worry about our country in so many ways. And maybe this Me Too movement is a result of people, they can do this. They can talk about this. They can bring this forward where they can't manage how to deal with some of these other things like taxes or health care. So it's very exciting. Yes. So it's exciting, but I never thought when I wrote St. Mary's Private Dancer that that would have anything to do I mean, this is my little bit towards some kind of hopeful liberation for some people, if there's, if I can be so bold as to say something like that. But I wrote this from my heart. It came out of experiences I've had. And no, I've never been a hooker. <laughs> um, people have said to me, this look, I have a hard time getting you out of the story. All I see is you. And I said, well, don't get too wrapped up in that because I haven't done all those things, you know. <laughs> 
but that's never been part of my history. But I do know people who it has been for. And I took a class in seminary called Prostitution and Global Theology, and it was taught by Susan Thistlethwaite and Rita Nagashami Brock. And it was about prostitution in the United States and prostitution in Asia. My eyes were so opened about things that I I had no idea about. And I would say some of the things I learned about in that class, listening to people's stories and meeting people in the work, uh, in the sex work, I learned so much more than I had known. So it kind of all unfolded in the book. Shepard is completely from my imagination in terms of the character, and I am in the middle of a second book. Now, middle is a bad term. I'm, I'm about 75 pages into the second book, which seems to be turning out completely different. But I think it'll have some of the same themes as St. Mary's Private Dancer. But, you know, when you write a book, well, for me, when I wrote a book, I mean, how do you repeat that? Then most of my friends say you just sit in the chair and you write and that it all unfolds. And I have wonderful, wonderful writer supporters. I'm in a group called Writing Sisters. We all met at the University of Wisconsin in a continuing education program called Write by the Lake. I would really highly recommend if there's any writers out there, take a look at the UW Continuing Ed Write by the Lake program. It's a week-long program and it's spectacular. It's very exciting. There's also another group there called the Writers Institute, which I will be teaching some workshops this year. So it's very exciting. And are you recommending this not only for people in Wisconsin, because this program goes all across the U.S. There are six stations in California carrying it. Should they come over to UW-Madison to be part of this? Absolutely. Some of these writers come from all over the country. There's even international people have come. It's just a wonderful, wonderful program. So just look at continuing it, especially the Writers Institute and Write by the Lake. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the book, Blair. You've already said that Shepard Murdoch, the woman who's a pastor, who's the central person in this fictional story, she is made up out of your imagination. Does she do things that you wouldn't do? (laughs) Probably not. I'd probably do all that. Okay. (laughs) I don't know that I would go undercover at a dance club, but... It would be fun, right? <laughs> I actually, through my class, I did go to a dance club, and I did see some of what I describe in those scenes. I actually saw those kinds of things happening. I didn't participate in the sense that I went undercover and I was you know, trying to solve a mystery, but I did go with this priest and another seminarian. Usually women are not welcome in these places. They're usually considered to be either a cop or a wife. And so they're just stopped at the door and they're not allowed to come in. But that's a fairly good memory of what what I saw there. But you also spend your time with music. I mean, you've arranged the stained glass coffee house and the other one. And so I've had you as my guest for Song of the Soul. But you do music yourself, as well as writing, as well as acting as pastor, and well, and your grandmother. I'm amazed that you have time for any writing whatsoever, much less going out to dance clubs. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't do that anymore. I only did that once, and that was when I was in seminary. I'm toying with the idea of going to Paris to do some research for this next book because the next book is called St. Mary's Guilty. To back up a minute, probably one of the most exciting things for me that happened with St. Mary's Private Dancer 
is, as you know, Private Dancer is a song that was done by Tina Turner. It is about a woman in prostitution or sex work. I discovered this song was written by Mark Knopfler for Dire Straits. I had no idea that that was true. Mark Knopfler is probably one of my favorite guitar players. I just, I've always thought he was just amazing. So on a whim, I wrote Mark Knopfler and I talked to his agent and I asked if I could use the words private dancer. And he said yes. The next book is St. Mary's Guilty. I don't think this will happen, but, you know, there are miracles. It's the song Guilty that from uh, Randy Newman made, in my mind, memorable by Bonnie Raitt that I have in, in the next book. You know, the line, I'm guilty and I'll be guilty for the rest of my life. But that was really exciting that Mark Knopfler gave me permission for it. And yes, I was a musician and I did travel as a musician for many years. And I consider that a very important part of my life. I'm so grateful to have ever had to do it, ever been able to do it. But now I sing in church, and I sing at home, and I don't really sing out. Well, let's get back to the central theme here. And again, it is sex workers, and you know, Marnie Cooper is the character in the book who's this kind of revolves around her work, her ex-work. You know, she left the profession. Is she doing it on the side? There's all those questions going around. And the lead character, Shepard Murdoch, who is the minister detective, she decides to pursue this, or retired, I guess, in the book. You should be so lucky, right? Yes. I don't think that'll ever happen. I think I'll be like Moses. I'll die on the mountaintop, and that'll be that. So, you know, the private dancer theme, you know, and how that is connected with sex work or is part of sex work. Way back seven years ago, I interviewed a woman named Renee Worser, who is with a church locally, who founded a group called Whispered Hopes. They go into the several clubs in this area where women do, you know, it's called exotic dancing, or I don't think there's any actually expectation of any sexual contact with anyone that's part of it. But part of her feeling is that those women are ostracized. They have to kind of hide that part of their lives. And so they go in, she and other women go in, to not try and talk them out of it, tell them what they're doing is wrong, nothing like that. They're trying to befriend them because they get lonely. The people you've counseled, is that your experience that they're lonely, isolated, cut off, and therefore they don't have extra resources that most people have? Well, most of the women that I have talked to are not like Marnie Cooper or any of the, you know, Pammy Joe or the uh, the other characters in the book. I've never talked to people who actually do this work. I have talked to women who have been abused by others more often, and I have had a chance to observe and read about and talk to some people who have, who I, I have actually, now that I think of it, I have talked to some people who are actually in sex work, but it's not like on a regular basis. The women that I did talk to in the past were all well controlled by a pimp and there was no communicating or any kind of conversation with um, There are several safe houses I know in the city of Chicago where women can go and get support and care. And I think in a lot of the big cities that exists, and, and women who are looking for help, as far as women who are doing the work and are stuck in it, I don't think that they have anybody to befriend them. And many, many of the women, not all, but many of the women were born into this. 
just like Marnie was, that her mother her mother started her at a young age in the book, and that's very common from what I understand. So what is the solution from your point of view? Where would you like to move society toward? Your book is not prescribing any solutions. I mean, you're solving a mystery, and but how does society need to change that this kind of thing will not happen? Well, I think it will always happen just because people control other people and people are poor and people... I will make a statement that a lot of people might disagree with me on, but I think that a lot of women, especially women who have found themselves on their own, kids or no money, they consider prostitution. Like, what would happen if I did that? How would that work? And for some reason, I think that just kind of rolls off people's minds. Not that anyone should Well, should's a bad word. If everyone thinks that does it, but, you know, as I mentioned in the book, just lightly, there is no pretty woman where you fall in love with somebody who picks you up in a fancy car and all is well. That just, you know, you may be delusional for a short period of time, but that that sort of thing doesn't happen. And we kind of live in that kind of bubble sometimes in the world. My, back to your question, I think the most important thing today anybody can do is sort of what you were talking about with this organization you mentioned that I'd never heard of before, Whispered Hopes, is to not judge people. Our job is not to tell them not to do these things. Our job is to give them resources and opportunities and possibilities in their lives so maybe they can choose another way to live. But it's not my job to tell somebody that this is wrong or I don't approve. It doesn't make any difference what I think. But I do think these people need to be befriended, loved, but those are hard things to do. Those are hard things to understand. There are some really, really fabulous organizations do a lot of good work with people on the street in general who might feel they have to turn to these kinds of things. The Night Ministry in the city of Chicago deals with people on the street, homeless people, kids who are have been kicked out of their homes. I mean, kids doing sex work to make money to eat food. So there are great organizations, and I'm sure they're in every large city and maybe some smaller cities. But I think that There is progress being made in the sense that people are talking to each other, they're talking about the issues, and they're helping each other to just be accepting. Is there an answer or a solution to prostitution? I don't think so. I think it will always go on until we achieve world peace, and that will be very exciting. (laughs) But people do stuff to each other, and they take advantage of each other. And I would say education of our young women, I think maybe, Maybe if we're lucky, this Me Too, as you called it, a revolution, this Me Too movement will start there being more things discussed for young girls to talk to them about, no, this isn't okay. If somebody touches you like that, that's not okay. And you can say, don't do that. If we start teaching people that it is not all right for somebody to give you a full body hug and you don't have to do that, those seem like little things to some people but they can be very uncomfortable for women. And so maybe we'll we'll start some of the little and the bigger kinds of conversations that might make people more aware of their behavior. That's probably a start. And that's the start that you've made by writing St. Mary's Private Dancer. Again, it's a Shepherd Murdoch mystery, and it's by Blair Hall, who's been with us here today for Spirit in Action. I just want to say, Blair, how exciting it is for me to hear you mention Rita Nakshima Brock's name. I've interviewed her for Spirit in Action before. Related to moral injury was the topic we were talking about. Fabulous work she's doing. Yes, fabulous, fabulous work. 
And it's so great that you've connected with her, that she's part of the seminal influences, I think, leading to this book. That's amazing to me. It's great that you can do all of your music work, which you've gifted me with probably five or ten guests for my Song of the Soul program, people I really love. And you shared your own Song of the Soul. You've been writing, you've been acting as a pastor, so there's no shortage of wonderful work you're doing in the world. And St. Mary's Private Dancer is added to the pile. Thank you. Thank you so much. I just want to say that from this class, Susan Thistlethwaite and Rita Nagashami Brock wrote a book called Casting Stones, if anyone is interested in the work. It's a little older. It was written late 90s, but if you can find it and you're interested in this, it's a spectacular book. But thank you. You made me feel good. It's hard when you're looking at your life to see your successes. And uh, thank you for just listing all that. It made me feel good. Thank you so much. (laughs) Well, and I'm glad to have you in my wider circle of friends. Thanks so much, Blair. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Mark. Take care. God bless. I didn't mention Blair's website. It's blairahall.com. And the link is on nordenspiritradio.org, where you can find all kinds of info about us, Song of the Soul and Spirit in Action, stations where you can listen, comments. Add to the richness by adding your own comment when you visit and check out the programs of the past 12 and a half years. And click Donate to keep this listener-funded program going. But first, make sure to contribute from your hands and your wallet to your incredible local community radio station, needed more than ever in the era of media conglomerates. Support your station first. And don't forget to check out the bonus excerpts from our programs, stuff we couldn't fit into the broadcasts, all there on nordenspiritradio.org, and there are some there from today's interviews as well. And now we'll move on to our second guest for today's Spirit in Action, again on the topic of sexual harassment and abuse, but via another murder mystery of an alternative form. Kirsten Peters taught geology until recently at Washington State University and is the author of a couple of science books, but also four mysteries under the pen name Irene Allen, and we'll be talking specifically about one of them called Quaker Witness, dealing with sexual harassment, which she experienced firsthand. Kirsten Peters joins us by phone from Pullman, Washington. Kirsten, thank you so very much for joining me for Spirit in Action. My pleasure. I know you don't do a lot of interviews. These books are out of print, unfortunately, including Quaker Witness and Quaker Testimony, Quaker Silence, Quaker Indictment. They're all out of print, but I don't think you lost your gift for writing. What happened? I was working full-time teaching undergraduate geology, and I wrote a couple of textbooks while I was in that phase of life. So that's where my writing energy went. And then more recently, I wrote a popular science book called The Whole Story of Climate, which was brought out by Prometheus Press. That's in print still. I'll have a link to that on nordenspiritradio.org. What is more fun, writing textbooks or writing Elizabeth Elliot mysteries? Oh, they're all fun. Textbooks involve graphs and diagrams and photographs together, all at the same time being ready for print. So there's more of a headache in that sense than writing something that's just prose. 
And what led you to be writing this mystery series? You were already in geology at the time, but you somehow got into writing this as a, a sideline. I bet you there wasn't a single other geologist in the department who was writing this kind of book. Right. What happened was that after I returned home, my home is in the eastern side of Washington State. I returned here from Harvard University where I had been a graduate student. I was very ill, and it wasn't clear what was wrong with me, but major psychiatric problems. I lived in my parents' house, and while waiting to see if I could recover or if I would live or die, things were very difficult for a long time. It was during that period that I started to write the Elizabeth Elliot stories. I did so because my parents and I would read aloud to each other in the evening, we found that better entertainment than what was on television. So I started to write the first story as something to be read aloud to my parents. I wasn't necessarily thinking of a broader audience at all. And that's how the first murder mystery came into existence. And then I was fortunate enough to get a publishing contract and wrote three more for a total of four. And today, Kirsten, we're going to focus on Quaker Witness, and that's because at this time in 2017, the issue of sexual harassment, sexual abuse has been so forward. In a lot of ways, what you wrote about back in the mid-1990s is almost prescient in terms of the issues, but the Me Too campaign and the people stepping forward to confront this, how much were you a prophet crying in the wilderness back in the mid-1990s? Was this a really minority position to actually want to have this stuff addressed? Oh, yes. Remember, Anita Hill had testified to the Senate in the early 1990s. As she put it recently, she simply was not heard. The senators on that committee were not ready to hear what she had to say. And I think that's right. We've come a, a long way. The stunning thing to me about this moment in 2017 is that for the first time, women coming forward and giving their testimony is really affecting men in significant positions, even to the point that they are fired or forced to resign. That's the new thing about the current moment, and it is stunning to me as someone who lived in uh, research science in the 1980s, which was very much a male-dominated field, we've come a long way. Let's talk about your experience, because I have the sense that in writing Quaker Witness, you're talking in the book, the, the main protagonist, uh, Janet, she's dealing with stuff in a fictional paleontology department at Harvard, and she's dealing with sexual abuse, sexual harassment by her advisor, by the person she's answerable to, and she's not going to get her doctorate or PhD without that person's agreement. Here he is, he's hitting on her and abusing her, and she's got nowhere to turn. Now, there's a process already in place at that time. You were going through your graduate studies not too long before or after that. Did you encounter that same mindset in the departments you were dealing with? Yes. The book is inspired by some of my experience. Uh, I can't discuss details, but I can say 
that I wrote a formal complaint about harassment from a male faculty member in my department. And another woman, the only other woman in my area at that time, who had dropped out because of that man, she also wrote a complaint. So Harvard had in its hands two complaints from the two women who were in the area at that time. As I say, the remarkable thing to those of us who went through such things in the old days is that now, for whatever reason, and we can discuss what reason that might be, there are consequences for the men in positions of power. Is it permissible to ask if there were consequences back then, or was it like with Anita Hill? It's like, sure, sure, be quiet, dear, don't speak up. It was closer to Anita Hill than anything that's happening now. Well, that's pretty sad. Now, again, you were in geology at that point, but the protagonist here, Janet, she's in theoretical department of paleontology. I don't want to give too much of the story away, although folks should know that this uh, book, the pen name is Irene Allen, and it's actually Kirsten Peters who wrote the book. Irene Allen writes about somebody named Elizabeth Elliot, and I've noticed a pattern. Did anybody else notice this, that Elizabeth Elliot is a woman's name, a man's name, theoretically in our society. Irene Allen is a female and a male name, and Kirsten Peters has that same pattern. Did I find something secret that was coded into all your books? Uh, You just are more alert than anyone else has been. No, I've never thought about that or heard it mentioned. (laughs) Was it intentional on your part? No, not intentional. Irene Allen is my grandmother's, my maternal grandmother's maiden name. She was still alive at the time I was writing these books, and I wrote to her and asked if I could use that name, her birth name, and she said yes, she'd be delighted, and she was very pleased when what she called her books came out. How sweet. What a gift to give to her. Now, again, you're writing this in the mid-1990s. This particular book has copyright of 1993. So we're back before so much of this consciousness has risen up. I'd like to talk a little bit about the plot of the book and how it unfolds, because I I think it's significant the way that you deal with the issue in this book. It's different than what we're able to do now. In the book, Janet is driven out of the lab by her advisor. She files a complaint, and because she is an occasional attender of the Quaker meeting at Cambridge, she ends up connecting up with Elizabeth Elliot, who is the clerk of the meeting, a 65-year-old woman. Now, at this time, you're what, maybe 30 or something when you're writing? Correct. And so you're writing about this 65-year-old woman, and you very accurately describe her weaknesses and her the physical frailties, the things that occupy her. Did you have a mentor in mind who Elizabeth was based on? Elizabeth's physical difficulties and even the medication she takes, like for her arthritis, were the same that my mother was taking at that time. I was living in my parents' household, so I was very much aware of how my father and mother were aging. Now I'm approaching that age myself, and I'm starting to take more and more medication. I've noticed the trend. (laughs) Well, at least you did the exploration already a generation ago, so you're ready for it as it comes in. 
Is there a person who, Elizabeth Elliot, that she's following in the footsteps of, someone that you actually knew? Was there a Quaker clerk or an elder woman, one of the Quaker crones, who perhaps helped inspire her? There were several. She's a composite of several mature Quaker women who were active in the meeting at that time. And also in the book, Elizabeth relies on her friend, Patience Silverstone, and Patience is even older than Elizabeth. And you know, Mark, as a Quaker, that elders are valued in Quaker custom. And I also know what you write in the book, Kristen, is that they're hardly saintly and they're hardly perfect, which is a great relief to not have that kind of a saintly image portrayed. At one point, the Quaker clerk, Elizabeth, calls up Joel who's supposed to be a a good Quaker member of the meeting, who's also in sciences and also in a department. And he gives her short shrift. He just denies. He doesn't listen at all. And like many of the Quakers I know, it's like we're we're all very human beings, which I think is particularly good. So where do you think that uh, Elizabeth Elliot's superpowers come from? Well, she's a patient observer, and she's good at talking with people. They are disarmed by the fact that she is 65 and the notion that she's a Quaker. People within Harvard subculture don't know much about Quakerism, but they give it more respect than they would if she were a Baptist or a Methodist. Being a Quaker is considered a bit peculiar, but not more than that. At that point, I assume you were attending Quaker meetings at one point or another, either on the West or East Coast. You had attended meetings there. Were these issues of sexual harassment and abuse being discussed in those circles at that time? Did you hear people's opinions go back and forth about that within this subculture? Only with respect to myself. There was no broader discussion because this would be the late 1980s Anita Hill had not yet risen to the surface of public consciousness. And did you find support there or dismissal, or how was it approached? I found deep and impressive support for me as a person, for me as a graduate student. Quakers understood that this was something, my studies were something that I had devoted my young life to, They were ready and willing to do anything they could to be useful to me. I'm just wondering how close the pattern ran to the stories that happened in the book. When Joel kind of dismisses what Elizabeth says, it's like, hey, there's this young woman. We need to get some information about this. And he says, oh, he brushes it off the first pass. Did you have someone in the Quaker meeting who did that to you and then who had to be brought along by these, like you mentioned, patients and Elizabeth? No, that is fiction. I had no Joel in my experience um, with, with the Cambridge meeting. I received nothing but support from several people. It was both important in my finishing my degree and in terms of surviving the mental illness, which was getting worse as I entered full adulthood and approached my 30th birthday. I am a person who has suffered from mental illness from childhood forward, and my current diagnosis is something called schizoaffective disorder, which is a form of schizophrenia. I am a high-functioning 
schizophrenic, able to read and write, to hold down professional jobs until recently. I'm now on disability because the illness grows worse over time, the effect that it grows worse over time. But I needed the help of Quakers to just survive what was happening to me internally as well as make sense of and respond to what was happening in my academic life at Harvard. It's all the more powerful, Kirsten, that they were supporting you at that time with that issue. Is it okay if I include in our radio broadcast that mention of this? Some people want to be very secretive, hide this, and I think that means in part they don't get the support that they deserve to get. Is it okay if I include this in the broadcast? Yes, please. I feel it's important for people with mental illness to acknowledge it as clearly as someone with a cancer diagnosis or with type 2 diabetes. And I like to hope that as we go forward in this century, more understanding and respect will be afforded people with major psychiatric problems. Well, thank you for sharing that. I do think you're right, that we do need to treat it both respectfully listening. And as I think things that are hidden under carpets tend to degrade into worse components, and they come out as a general sickness in society. But back to Quaker Witness. And again, the author is listed as Irene Allen, which is, of course, the pen name for today's guest for Spirit in Action, Kirsten Peters. And Kirsten's over in eastern Washington state these days, although this murder mystery is actually taking place by Cambridge in Massachusetts. There's a couple other threads from the book that I wanted to address. At one point, the heroine of the story, I guess you'd say, Elizabeth Elliot, who is the 65-year-old clerk at the Quaker meeting, she has the possibility of hosting someone who is a childhood friend of her son's. He's coming out of prison where he was in for some form of rape. We don't know the specifics of it until he gets out. So she accepts him. She's willing to provide some transitional housing for him as he comes out of prison, which is a thing Quakers have been involved in for a long time in both helping with that transition, help dealing with people who are have criminal charges against them in a different way. Is that something also you had some personal exposure to? And the fact that the person coming out of prison, John Anderson by name in the book, the discussion there relates also to sexual abuse and how we deal with sex in our society. So is that something that you had some inside knowledge of, you had heard people talking about, dealt with? Not directly. Quakers, as you say, have a tradition of working with people in prison, and there were people in New England doing that, but not the folks I was dealing with one-on-one and the people who were helping me. So I just but I put that in because it is an important part of the tradition that takes some people by surprise why you would visit prisons and try to be useful to prisoners. And not judge them quite as harshly, although Elizabeth goes a little bit awry in your story and doesn't do as good a job as she felt like she should do. Right. Elizabeth is not perfect, and she could have done better with John Anderson, as she herself thinks. So the issue in the case of this John Anderson in the book, again, it's fiction that we're dealing with, although it's realistic enough as I read the world, 
John Anderson just got out of prison because he was in for rape, and he denies the seriousness of the accusation. At one point, I was wondering whether you were providing counterpoint or something or balance or maybe filling out the ways in which the sexual misfunction of our society operates. Why did you include his story in there? I wanted to have another way of developing Elizabeth Elliot as a person. And if you read the other books in the series, you, you get the fuller picture that she has children. She is a widow, grown two boys who've grown up, and they don't appear in this book, Quaker Witness, but in other books they do. It's just a way of showing that Elizabeth is a fully rounded person and that she isn't a perfect one. She makes mistakes and her emotions get the best of her at times, as is true of all of us. Let's mention quickly the other books that you've written, Quaker Silence, Quaker Testimony, Quaker Indictment. Which is your favorite out of the four, and Quaker Witness being the fourth? Quaker Testimony, without a doubt. That's the third one in the series, and I feel the best about having written it. It explains the Quaker tradition of resisting taxes that are used for war. That is important in Quaker history in centuries past, going all the way back to colonial times and earlier than that in England. And it's something that some Quakers still do today. Roughly half of the federal budget is devoted to making war or preparing for war. And many Quakers, including myself, find that very difficult. It's hard for us to understand what our responsibilities are as citizens. Wanting to participate in society and support the government, which is following various policies, but at the same time to make our opposition to war known. I don't think I've mentioned this to you before, Kirsten, but I have been a war tax resistor since 1982. It's been a calling near and dear to my heart, so that when I read Quaker Testimony, I was also taken. It's like, this person, she knows what it's about. She's <laughs> attached to this thing that's been so big in my life, too. So I want to thank you for writing that. Unfortunately, Quaker Witness, Quaker Testimony, and the other two books— they're not available. They're not in print anymore. And of course, this is 20-plus years ago that these were written. I think folks can usually find a copy of them out on Amazon. Why is it particularly valuable to have a 65-year-old Quaker elder, Elizabeth Elliot, as the central person in these instead of, uh, you know, a virile 25-year-old, you know, strapping young Hulk, Captain America, or some other such super sleuth. Why is that a particularly helpful thing? I, and I think it is, so that's why I'm asking you. I assume you had a reason for it. I just wanted to separate my heroine from the typical whodunit heroines, the hard-boiled mysteries, where even the women carry a gun and things are resolved via fights and or gunshots. I wanted to write murder mysteries that were more aligned along the lines of Miss Marple that Agatha Christie wrote about. Miss Marple lives in a village and she solves the mystery by talking with people, not by force or violence. Could you explain your connection to Quakers? Obviously, you've attended Quaker meeting along the way. Were you raised Quaker? 
No, I wasn't. I was raised in mainline Protestant circles, and I became a Quaker going to the Quaker meeting in Cambridge. I have always been a long-distance walker, and I walked all the streets of Cambridge around Harvard University down to MIT. And one day I walked by the Quaker meeting and saw just a small plaque that said, Friends Meeting at Cambridge. And I made a mental note of that, as I'd always thought about Quakers. And my mother was a pacifist. She was not a Quaker, but she was a pacifist and raised me to respect those views. And so I just went one Sunday and was very impressed by silent worship, worshiping for about an hour, a little more than an hour sometimes, in silence with a few spoken messages by people who feel called in the moment to speak some message that they hope has greater resonance for those who are in attendance. And I went back, and I went back again, and eventually I started doing some of the committee work of the meeting. Then it certainly made sense to become a member. So I was a member of Friends Meeting at Cambridge while I was living in Cambridge, and then for a few years while I was living here at home in eastern Washington. You were a scientist. I mean, you still are. And geology is your field. And there's a lot of people who think that faith and science don't fit really well in the same bucket. What's your feeling about that? I have woven faith and science together in my life, as do a number of applied scientists people in agricultural science and engineering, technical people. I've known a number and I've read about many more who value religious life and religious experience while they also approach the world as scientists. And one thing I learned at Harvard, Stephen Jay Gould, the great paleontologist, taught me that Charles Darwin is buried in Westminster Abbey and that kind of merges, in my mind, a great modern scientist, namely Darwin, with religious life. The church made room for him, and I think a scientist can make room in our lives for religious experience. And hopefully they can even support it as you were supported when you were going through your trials there when you were at Harvard. Let me just conclude with a few more words about what your book, again written over 20 years ago, has to say about the sexual harassment and the abuse that's been going on now. If people had learned from Quaker Witness, what would they have done differently in suing 20 years that would get us to this point? Well, most fundamentally they would have learned to listen to what women say, in particular women in no position of authority whatsoever. And that's something we still need to learn. We haven't yet learned it in 2017 because the cases that have come to the public, the women who have been speaking have been speaking about very prominent individuals. With a little reflection, we can imagine that there are situations of harassment that go on for women who are working as custodians in the night shift, women who may be in vulnerable positions like that, and the men causing them trouble are not famous or prominent men, but they still hold authority over the women in question. But to get back to your question, what should we have learned? We should have learned to listen 
That's fundamental. And then I think as a society, and I'm only beginning to think about this myself, we need to understand how we respond to these issues and have some measure in our response, by which I mean how we deal with someone who's guilty of pinching a woman's butt versus someone who, like is alleged, Charlie Rose would have young women over to his apartment and walk in on them naked. That's a different level of offense. And the classic sexual harassment of someone saying, you've got to have sex with me if you're going to keep your job or if you're going to get a promotion. These different kinds of behaviors need a different type of response. It shouldn't all be extreme. We're only beginning, I think, to see that with the national stories about harassment. What should we do? How should we respond? I haven't heard that conversation yet get started publicly. You're right. It's a conversation we need to have, and it's not anybody who's done anything wrong gets tossed in the trash bin. There are people who we absolutely have to remove from the place where they can do danger and where they have to feel the consequences of their actions. And I do think by your kind of writing, Quaker Witness, again, is the book, folks, pen name Irene Allen. The actual author is Kirsten Peters. By this kind of writing, I think you've helped move the conversation forward. I think the society is finally catching up with you, Kirsten, and I'm really glad to see that it is. And I'm thankful for your writing and your continued efforts. Oh, thank you so much. Again, folks, Quaker Witness and the other three books of the series by Irene Allen are out of print. You can find them on Amazon for purchase. Again, purchase from previous owners. But they're excellent books. I enjoyed all four books that Kirsten wrote. And you'll find a link to some of that information on NordenSpiritRadio.org. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice